Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, again, commending to you our July-August issue at commentary.org, where not only do you get to read Noah Rothman's You Are What You Don't Eat, How Food Became Politicized, you can read Joseph Epstein on grief. You can read Todd Lindbergh on Ukraine and the West. You can read Michael Medved on a new movie about um, World War II. You can read Rob Long on why Top Gun is a box office phenomenon. You can read Christine Rosen both on how trauma became politicized and on how uh, the media are trying to whitewash their own role in the damage done to children and adolescents in schooling and socializing during the pandemic. And so much more. So that's commentary.org. Go subscribe. It is time for you to subscribe and enjoy your summer as a fully enrolled subscriber to Commentary Magazine as a listener of the Commentary Magazine podcast. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we delayed starting uh, the taping of this podcast to see what the Supreme Court decisions were going to were going to say. And uh, there is a biggie. There is a big it's a big one. It's a culture war one. It is a red state versus blue state one. It is the New York Times and the Washington Post and the media versus everybody else one. It is uh, the Bruin decision written by Clarence Thomas that finds that the uh, New York state legal scheme uh, that uh, required people seeking a permit to carry a gun, uh, that they had to go through a process by which a state bureaucrat would decide whether their need for a gun was reasonable or not, uh, that this violated the Constitution, that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is not a second-class right, according to Thomas, and who says he knows of no other right that requires a, a government bureaucrat to sort of like wave a wand and grant you permission to exercise it, and uh, with a 6-3 margin uh, going along ideological lines. Uh, the regime in which uh, pretty much uh, uh, blue states... Um, Reds, I'm sorry, <laughs> in, which, in which liberal states uh, seek to uh, control guns by controlling gun ownership uh, has now basically been uh, blasted away. Our friend Stephen Gutkowski at the Reload says this, this will directly impact seven states, New York, obviously, New Jersey, and several others. About 10 years ago, the Illinois State Supreme Court struck down concealed carry laws as being unconstitutional. Uh, that was, the, that was a, sort of an earth-shaking moment in gun jurisprudence, um, in part because the Supreme Court refused to hear appeals to it, and now it is now affirmatively ruled along the same lines. So uh, interesting that this happens, of course, as the Senate is coming close to uh, concluding its work on the let's do something after Uvalde bill. Uh, and obviously, all the coverage of this is going to twin the two things. In the in the oh, isn't this ironic? Uh, game that, that they people... have absolutely nothing to do with one another. So that what? I can think of. I mean, well, it's pretty clear with gun over lo- here, gun f- over here, guns. Well, we're story gonna, on guns, and everybody. Story and you on can guns. see exactly how everybody's going to talk past each other on this because progressives will focus on the material effect of this decision, which will make it easier for you to conceal carry, and conservatives and gun rights activists will focus on the philosophy of it, which is indisputable that there is no right contained within the Bill of Rights or the Constitution broadly that forces you to explain to an unelected functionary why you have the need to exercise that right. Right. Rights but, are inviolable. The, so, right. They are yeah. God-granted. So, the, but of course, uh, they were violable. They were violated until the Supreme Court decided that this was an inviolable right. So, or, you know, or didn't decide, but... Well, but they have the upper that, hand, frankly, just having read this decision briefly, um, at, but and then some concluding documents around it ahead of it, you know, um, suggesting that the, the, the statute at issue here wasn't the concealed carry as much as the language at state level statutes 
in New York proper cause, in New Jersey, uh, justifiable reason, all these, you know, the language around how you have to demonstrate why you need to defend yourself. What's your need to defend yourself? This well, is a I very, just want to say, I think yeah. there is there there is a commonality here in that um, that is how people talk about assault rifles, right? Sure. They they're, they're just how Joe Biden talks about other things about that they don't want you to no, have. They talk what, about any gun. talk about any gun this way. Who? Why do you need one? Right now, if you say it's for self defense, it's like, oh, really? You need it for self defense? I don't. I I I don't have one. Um. And uh, this goes to the, uh, you know, great line in King Lear, right? <laughs> when Lear says reason, not the need. Um, if you have a right to carry a gun, you have a right to carry a gun. Uh, we do limit this right in some ways. In other words, like a fully fu- non-fully functioning citizen can be denied the right to carry a gun. A kid, right? Not a fully functioning member of the polis can be denied a gun. Felon can be denied a gun because uh, because of uh, safety reasons, but nonetheless, we do, we do allow. There are some you know emendations to the absolute right to exercise your constitutional rights. You don't have an absolute right to yell fire in a crowded theater, whatever. But um, absent absent a pressing, uh, you know, social need uh, of that oh. sort, or one or an exception that is you know I don't know commonsensical. He- Here's how this dovetails with the Senate legislation that's working its way through the Congress right now. Red flag laws. Um, So the person who approves in this regime that is now being dismantled, and I can only speak for my state, New Jersey, if you apply for a permit and you apply for a concealed carry and you demonstrate that you have a justifiable need for self-defense, it's a chief of police or the superintendent of your local police that will approve or disapprove your application, not a judge. In a red flag law, it would be a judge who has to approve or disapprove an application that would deny you access to a firearm for a particular period of time based on certain circumstances, um, whatever they are, that's that's applicable. So if if it was in the courts where you had to justify your need for self-defense, it might be a different situation, but we're talking about law enforcement. So, I mean... Uh... It's an interesting distinction because some judges are elected, some judges are not elected. Presumably, they know the law better. They know the constitutionality of the law better on the cases of you know red flags and would say be biased more in favor of hewing to the law and to the Constitution than an individual bureaucrat, even though that person may be sworn to uphold the Constitution, you know, will will basically make whatever call they make individually. But I'm more interested in the larger, sense now in in uh, in the uh, in the in the culture war effect here um which is that uh, i know you know 20 people who are going to say that this is all of a piece with the destruction of our republic i mean with with no with no qualification um who do not accept in any way shape or form the idea that the second amendment says what it plainly says but twist themselves into pretzels to say it doesn't say what it plainly says because the opening clause says that, uh, you know, uh, what is it? A well-regulated state, you know, the need, I don't, I don't have the language directly memorized. Let me just look it up because of the two clauses of the second amendment, right? Uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So they just say that the first part of the clause means that you can regulate anything. And others say the second clause is what matters. Um, And uh, they're quite easily harmonized uh, because grammatically, the well-regulated militia means that the citizenry before there was a standing army, the citizenry of the country must be armed to protect the security of a free state because there was no standing professional military and a militia is made up of citizens, ordinary people who can band together if necessary to defend their, their territory, their property from, you know, I mean, from whom, from, from Canadians, from Indians, from, you know, from the British who were coming in in 1812, whatever. 
but but the idea being that their freedom must be protected and so the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed and if there is anything that's that that liberals believe it is that the constitution being an imperfect document this is the most imperfect part of this imperfect document and they would prefer to ignore it and the six three the you know the six conservative justices on the supreme court do not ignore the plain language of the constitution um and that's where we're going to see the culture war because because of the precisely what you guys are it's like what what do you need a gun for you yeah, don't well, start have to first of all the constitution says what you need it for you need it to defend the security of a free state um and that free state can be defined in very 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 broad very complicated you know political science political philosophical terms a free citizen's exercise of his of a citizen's exercise of his constitutional rights making sure that they're not infringed that makes you a free you know that makes you an actor in a free state you're a militia of one but you're still a militia anyway so so yeah this will be um this will be rolled into the discussion the argument of the unique threat that republicans pose to the to the country uh that uh, republican appointed judges pose um that the federal society poses to the country and uh there will be you know continued talk of packing the courts well look there are two answers to this problem with the second amendment uh, uh, brett stevens our friend a commentary uh, contributing editor uh, doesn't like the Second Amendment and says the only real remedy for the Second Amendment is to repeal it because it says what amend it says. It. And so you're going to have to, huh? Or amend it. He says repeal. Okay. Well, that's crazy. Sorry, Brad. We don't, but it's we not don't, we don't not, I'm sorry. But, um, no, an amendment not, is not out of the we question. We do not amend the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights are not amendable. Another, there is no way in which the Bill of Rights, you amend the Second Amendment. It was passed. You passed the 29th Amendment to adjust the second amendment, but you cannot amend the second amendment. You need an amendment to the constitution that amends the constitution. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, th this is a, this is a great. Noah is squinting at me over the, the bill of rights has never been amended. The bill of rights was passed on mass in 1791 and is not amendable. However, it's findings or you can add to it. You can add, you know, Due process of law in the 14th amendment you can add to the constitutional rights or you can you know but uh, you don't amend the second amendment anyway he says you repeal the second amendment which by the way effectively any any amending of the second amendment would do you basically be repealing you'd be superseding it let's say with another amendment that governed uh gun laws but that's of course not going to happen you need two-thirds of the senate three-quarters of the states you know, and what is it, 75% of the House to agree to a constitutional amendment. So you're not going to get a constitutional amendment to repeal the Second Amendment. Um, but that is the only real way to deal with the Second Amendment. Once, once this school of jurisprudence started that said, you guys are, what you guys are up to is you are seeking to restrict gun ownership rights in the United States. That really hadn't happened with the exception of a few provisions in 1934, that really hadn't happened in the United States until the last 40 or 50 years, in which at the federal level and at the state level, there were real efforts to codify restrictions in gun ownership. People don't really understand that, but it was the case. So, um, so game it out. <laughs> um, what is it, what, what is it, what does this portend? See, I think it doesn't pretend much because I don't know. The gun issue has been absolutely ruinous for Democrats. Democrats think that the public is with them on guns. And when you do polling, people are perfectly willing to agree to restrictions, certain types of restrictions, waiting periods, things like that, that, that aren't restrictions. I mean, the odd thing about a waiting period, which is why it's probably totally constitutional, is that the waiting period does not restrict your right to bear arms. It just says you need to wait five days before you can bear an arm. Is that a, is that an undue restriction on your rights? It's a little hard to say that that's an undue restriction on your rights because it might take five days for your gun to be delivered to you. 
you know, if you order it online or something like that. Um, but, you know, uh, Democrats thought in 1994 that they were uh, that they were changing the politics of the United States with the assault weapons ban and some of the legislation that happened there. And instead, they 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 awakened a sleeping giant of a sort that we'd never seen before, because there had been 12 years of restrictive gun legislation before the assault weapons ban. There had been the Brady Bill, which significantly restricted access to handguns as a result of the uh, attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan and the and the um, you know crippling and uh, vicious injury done to his press secretary Jim Brady. So. You know, and especially they had 12 good years and then and then and then the world came down upon their shoulders. And I would say this especially w- won't help them because uh, Republicans have, can say they've, they've gotten on board in terms of the new uh, proposed legislation regarding red flag laws and uh, background checks and and uh, and uh, mental health and, and the rest of it. If anything, it'll hurt those Republicans. Well, that ah, that's a ah, that's an interesting. Yeah, really, you haven't thought about. Yeah, I mean, they're all no, going to suffer from this. All of them. Because well, the activist, oh, absolutely, the activist class is formulating retroactively their arguments against this legislation that they didn't advance when it was just a framework, not because they were waiting to see what the actual legislation would look like, but because they didn't have an argument against the actual framework. Now they're formulating an absolutist argument against everything. Raising the age, red flag laws, all of the above, not, not, not muddling sure up in the conservative firmament. Well, the other way of looking at it is that they they don't need to. They just scored, you know, a, like a like a generational victory in the Supreme Court that says unelected bureaucrats are are, are you know that restricts the ability of unelected bureaucrats to say you can't you can't carry a gun with you. That's much larger. Than evading red flag laws, which I want want to re- I want to remind you, the NRA and gun organizations often say, "Look, what we want to do is keep guns out of the hands of the mentally ill and criminals. We're we're more serious about that than you are." And you know, the question is, does a does a does a well written red flag law uh, do that? Does it does it threaten the rights of law abiding Americans or does it target people who are not yet full citizens, right? High school students, people like that, or people who have had encounters with uh, law enforcement or 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 mental health professionals. That, well, we know that how this raise... goes. This the kind of rational argument is drowned out immediately by the loudest voices on either side of the fringe. We're absolutists in both directions. Those are the people well, but, that the politicians hear and respond to. The, the point that Noah's made, you know, multitude of times stands, which is that uh, conservatives aren't always the best at recognizing their wins. So, so that the is idea- a very good point, because right, because basically this is, as I say, this is a this is a historic victory in this multi-decade fight for gun rights. Um, you know, and generally speaking, conservatives shouldn't want their historic victories to come through the courts because that's how liberals do it. And, and, and they're apparently on the verge of another historic victory, you know, next week uh, with when the, when the Dobbs decision is released, although that undoes that there's something legitimate about that in that sense, because it undoes an unjust and then what a lot of us believe to have been, and injustice in the behavior of the Supreme Court, it cre- it it, uh, it will revoke a falsely determined constitutional right. Nonetheless, those are yeah. So if you get concealed carry, or you get a world in which you know New York State officials aren't allowed to say you can't have a gun because they just don't like the cut of your jib, yeah, you should take the win. You should say you see. The whole point here is that we have been arguing that we Americans have rights and liberals and progressives always want to limit your rights in favor of group rights, in favor of group identities, in favor of social engineering. And we're here to defend your rights and we just want a huge victory in defense of individual liberty. But if your organizing principle is that you only ever lose because you are horribly underserved by a cabal of elites who do not have your best interests in mind and are more apt to surrender than they are to to fight for what you want you can't have victories 
They can't exist. They must be rationalized away. Won't even be discussed in the terms that we're discussing it here. Maybe so. I mean, and maybe that's a good fundraising principle, but I, 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 I don't, it's, it's complicated. I mean, it's genuinely complicated. The fact of the matter is that, okay, let me, let me shift gears here a little bit and go into much more naked politics. Um, so uh, the, the political world was thunderstruck by the release of a, I think it's the University of New Hampshire poll with a small sample size, but of course, New Hampshire is a small state and relatively homogeneous. Um, so as a result, you know, the, the, the polling sample may be more accurate than polls of larger states with, that are more heterogeneous might have it. Um, that shows what are the specifics that Republicans in the state now slightly prefer Ron DeSantis to Donald Trump as the potential nominee for the Republican um, nomination in 2024. This is a, you know, this is a, if true, and if so, this is a thunderclap, potential thunderclap moment, right? So a friend of mine uh, texted me uh, last night to say, after our conversation about DeSantis the other day on the, on the podcast said, the conservative and Republican women that he knows, women, to a one prefer DeSantis to Trump because they want to move on. They really like what DeSantis did on schools and on, you know, what was going on in Florida and that he fought the media and all of that, but they don't want to talk about 2020 and they want to move on and they like, and they like the cut of his jib. So those are conservative women. I don't know how they'll feel about the Senate bill. But um, to the extent that the Senate bill on guns says, wait a few days, make sure that a kid, you know, didn't kill an animal on his front lawn and told a, told a high school counselor that he heard voices. Let's just make sure that didn't happen before he gets a gun. That might dovetail with some of this in the, in the, in the sense that, uh, the hardest of hard lines in Republican and conservative politics are very male in their construction. And maybe DeSantis is going to benefit. And maybe there is here in the way that some Republicans are supporting the uh, reporting, supporting the uh, Senate bill, that there is gender gap stuff going on inside the Republican and conservative coalitions that Trump is a guy candidate, that this approach, the ever fighting, 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 and going back and making sure that you fight to the last dog on 2020 is a guy thing. And that, and that Republican, rock red Republican women may want to move on. Now we're three men here. <laughs> Christine's not here to help us uh, provide her own unique guidance, but I did text her and she said, this is exactly what the story is in her family and with her friends. Anyway, what do you guys make of this? I'm putting a lot of disparate things together here in this scenario. Well, I, I don't said, think it's... Babe, please. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't doubt that that's uh, part of the picture here, but I don't think it's just uh, a, a woman thing here. Um, I mean, it's interesting to see this poll only a few days after I'd said during that discussion on the podcast about DeSantis that everyone I know who was, I mean, and I said it was anecdotal at times, so it's interesting to now see data. Everyone I, I know who was a hardcore, Trumpy, uh, MAGA, ultra MAGA person has confessed to me when, when we've discussed it that they would far prefer DeSantis now to, to Trump. So I don't know that it's just women, but but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be at all surprised if 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 that effect was um, uh, amplified among women. Yeah, I, I mean, don't plus, know. Plus, I... plus with Trump, you just have the there's just there's the built in sexism baggage. I mean, that that DeSantis doesn't have just yeah, in terms I, of, his con of conduct. I mean, we're talking about this one New Hampshire poll, right? And the, the answer to your question is in the poll. 
would you like to see Donald Trump run for president again in 2024? Uh, among gender, men, definitely 19%. Women, 20%. Uh, definitely not men, 55%. Women, 66%. In the primary race, among Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Kirstie Noem, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Rick Scott, Tim Scott, Donald Trump. Go down to Donald Trump and support for Donald Trump in this lineup. Among men, 36. Among women, 38. So that really has very little to do with it. What I think really resonates is this idea of backward, looking backwards. And the notion here that, you know, we should really fight about 2020, which I don't see very many gender distinctions there either, frankly. Um, because every conservative woman I know in my life is dogged in defense of their principles, more so than any of the men I know, and is very aggrieved by what they perceive to be the persecution of Donald Trump, more so than the men I know in my life. Okay. Anecdotal. So, every so yes, I will introduce an item here that I think you'll probably hand wave away because it's probably a little theoretical, but the January 6th committee hearings have done nothing but amplify the 2020 stuff and, and dra drag Donald Trump into it. He is now consumed with relitigating 2020, as he always was. But he wants equal time. He wants to refute these claims. It's in the news. The only time you ever hear Donald Trump's name is in, within the context of 2020. And so that could be having the effect of creating the impression among voters' minds that he is the candidate of yesterday. I'm not going to wave that away. I think it's very, I think it's, it's, it's very plausible. I don't think you need to. Uh, because you would think that the, the conservative reaction would be revenge, a, a grievance, persecution complex, that sort of thing. I, you know, I don't know because there's too many positive things for conservatives to do between now and 2024 for it simply to be revenge. You know, they can vote in 2024 to push a Republican Congress in and to punish Biden and to and to vote even for, you know, Trumpy people state by state who aren't Trump, you know, that they might that they might prefer to standard issue Republicans all over the place. But all of that is about 2022. It's not about with the exception of these people not wanting to say that Biden, you know, legitimately won the election because they don't want to they don't want to go crosswise of him or go crosswise of them because more all the passion is on the Biden didn't win legitimately front. But I don't know. I'm, I'm very struck by this idea. And I, I take your point about, you know, about the poll data uh, resisting the anecdote. But uh, it, it dovetails with my anecdotes because all the women in my life have the courage of their convictions more so than the men I know. But you know, but what I mean is, I don't know that is it a conviction-based thing to think that the election that Biden was illegitimately elected and he didn't get eighty-one million votes is that is that principle? I don't. I, I mean, it, de it depends on how you want to define what causes are, you know, and and, and what principle is. But if you can get everything that in ideological terms you could get from Trump from somebody else, meaning DeSantis, uh, without somebody talking incessantly about voting machines in Georgia, so you get Trump without Trump in the eyes of a lot of people, uh, that may be a very attractive option. More interestingly, now, and also sort of dovetails with the January 6th hearing stuff in ways that I think most people who talk about conservative politics will be disinclined to accept is that Mike Pence is doing a lot better than he was last time around. He's raised by uh, increased his support by he's still in single digits, but he's at 9%, whereas he was at 4% two months ago, three months ago in this very same poll. Right. Um, and he's in third. I mean, it, it, He's the third preference compared to literally everybody else in that field. Um, as somebody who uh, made a, a gigantic uh, uh, procedural or tactical or conceptual error in looking at early polling in 2005, 2006 and saying, aha, Hillary Clinton is going to be the nominee in 2008 and only Rudy Giuliani can stop her. And I read a whole book about this, which is, you know, sells for a penny on Amazon if you want to go buy it. And I'll, I would probably refund you the penny. It's okay. It's a, it's a fun read. 
it's a species of its time. I'm in no way going to defend looking too far ahead in the future and thinking that you know what's going on. But there are alternate pieces of data that are worth considering when you think about this. One of which is when Joe Biden entered the race in 2019. Now, that's not now. That was, but it was sort of starting right after November 20, 2018. He was at around 30% in the polls. He led in the polls. And people say, oh, you know, that's just name ID and this and that and blah, blah. It was just name ID. And you know what? He was at 30% in the polls. He never dropped below 30% in the polls. He was always at a double-digit lead. And until the lunatic commies of Iowa and New Hampshire threw a big scare into him and kind of gave him three bad weeks, what seemed to be a foregone conclusion when he entered the race remained the foregone conclusion, which is that he walked into the nomination having only had two bad states to precede him. And uh, similarly, when Trump entered the race in uh, May of 2016, it took him six weeks to get into the poll position to be the polling at number one in the polls as people began to realize that this wasn't just sort of a stunt and a joke and he was actually really doing it. And he never surrendered that either. So, you know, when you, if you have these two people like way up in the polls, Trump and DeSantis, and, and they are solid candidates with real national for and DeSantis is somebody who comes really out of nowhere to stand in this position. You know, he didn't have 9-11. You know, it wasn't like Rudy. He wasn't the most famous person in America for a year. So Rudy had that juice when he had name ID juice when people were polling on who they might want in 2008. This is something that he has built out of three yards and a cloud of dust and fighting the media and fighting liberals and fighting COVID bureaucrats and all of that for two years or three years. You can look at that and say, you know, it's going to be really hard for anybody else to, 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 these are, this is a, this is a solid showing and it's a very solid showing against Trump. And it's the only, it's the first solid showing anybody has shown against Trump. And obviously New Hampshire is vitally important because New Hampshire is what, you know, is what made Trump in 2016, you know, when he, when he crushed in, in New Hampshire, because he lost in Iowa. Anyway, I don't want to sort of get ahead of, get, get out in front of my seat. I'm just saying, like, it's just interesting that uh, politics doesn't necessarily go, isn't necessarily going to reward losers. Like, maybe Republicans are going to take the win. Maybe they're going to look at the field of battle and say, look where we are going into 2024. Roe's been overturned. Concealed carry is around. They're, they're, you know, we're fighting back at every level, schooling and this and that and the other thing. We don't need to, you know, what do we need to go back to our bad memories of the pandemic and, and, and election hijinks and stuff? We're cruising. Like, we're, we're not cruising, but we're like, you know, the order of battle. We are, we are joined in the battle for the soul of the country. And he just wants to talk about, you know, Dominion and Smartmatic and the Fulton County State Farm Arena. It also doesn't bode, bode well for the NatCons, by the way, because they're, they're, they lead the pack in not taking the win, right? They're, they're the ones that think no change can be affected unless uh unless, unless the pope get, unless uh, the pope becomes the unless the pope becomes the king of america that's 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 the hardest faction <laughs> among them um uh and that is real among some of them but uh uh but no but unless unless you get ugly um in, in, unless you unless you um give up on persuasion and um try to just force through a, a bunch of a bunch of things that you'd like to see and that argument, if, if you if you actually look at the at the, the case, John, that you've just laid out about the the, the string of, of I think pretty bankable victories here, um, that argument makes no sense now. Abe, you actually had a very um, astute observation on our text thread along these lines that you should probably not deprive the audience of because it's it's really really interesting and also in, indicative of why this this movement that had so much heat behind it is dissolving into acrimony and internecine conflict. I mean, well, the NatCon, TradCon, SoCon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think so much of, of the, the pushback on the on the 2020 radicalism that we've seen so much of the pushback 
especially the effective parts of it and things like on schooling, uh, on uh, uh on re in reinstituting standardized testing, um, on objection to uh, critical race theory, law on, on law enforcement. So much of this has come back as has has been the result of non-radical liberals persuading other liberals. Um, you don't so uh, you don't need you don't need to wage this you know sort of like. Uh, uh, reckless war and make enemies and ag- despite everything going on persuasion still works yeah you're a rhino squish like that like dan crenshaw yes rhino squish him too yeah um i mean that's the problem with this is that is that um we all understand the anger we all have felt in our lives the anger that comes from the idea that um, we are to accept half a loaf, particularly when the the loaf that we're getting half of, the other half of the loaf seems particularly diseased, morally diseased. This is what the natcons and the tradcons believe that you know it's a morally diseased half loaf, and if you if you take the other half of the loaf, it's moldy and sick too it's just less moldy and less sick but it's going to get more moldy and sick as time goes on so you either have to go for the whole loaf or you're never going to get anything and the other and side plays by a, a different set of rules and they can demonize yeah. and and uh, persecute yeah. with abandon yeah. and you can't and all of that is all of that is is, is of true course. but there also there is also the the you know absolute factual basis to say that X, Y, and Z has happened since 2020, and there has been X, Y, and Z pushback since 2020, which, in the case of people like us, the level of pushback that we have seen in some relatively traditionally left-wing circles and others has been jaw-dropping and should not be poo-pooed because just like the changes in Hispanic voting and stuff like that, America is not static. Everything doesn't stay the way it is. Things move and sometimes they move very quickly. And it is very easy to get, um, to get seduced by the, um, by the seeming permanence of the present and not understand that, you know, that we're on a, we're on a planet that spins and we're spinning at the same time. And that, things aren't just going to remain the way where they and are. Let's, let's take it back to the courts where we began. A revolutionary ethos is a revolutionary, you know, activity is romantic. It's sexy. What the, the victories that conservatives are enjoying now on gun rights and perhaps on abortion later on this week are the product of decades of very unsexy, boring legislative work that is effectively persuasion. And now, Heller, and Heller was, the, was, was persuasion going back two decades. It took a long time to get there. And it, it, it was the beginning of the liberalization of gun laws across this country that has been ongoing for 15 years now. Um, and conservatives are loath to recognize those victories, but there are victories that came not as, not as a result of destroying things or breaking things, but building things, building institutions, making arguments and making them sometimes unsuccessfully over the course of entire careers, legacies, are built on this activity, and it doesn't happen overnight. And, that is and, very important. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, just and also and, and without an appeal to authoritarianism, right? And direct action. You know, the right is just. I think, which is your point about the trad console. You know, the right is just as addicted to the romance of direct action and its effect as the left is. I mean, actually, not quite as much, but kind of, kind of as much. And there was a period of direct action, particularly on abortion. In the late 80s and early 90s, we had abortion. Uh, we had doctors who performed abortions getting assassinated. We had abortion clinics being blown up. We had action that was in, consciously intended to evoke John Brown and the, aboli- and the radical abolitionists and the idea that if you can't get them to stop doing this evil, uh, you scare them out of it and you, and you do what you have to do because you're doing it to save lives and all it did in the end was strengthen the pro-abortion movement it turned uh, planned parenthood into a blockbuster fundraising machine that built hundreds if not thousands of abortion clinics across the united states it hardened 
the abortion rights movement in many ways uh, into a you know a vehicle for getting people elected and raising a lot of money and you know changing the way the culture talked about these things, making the culture more comfortable with abortion and all of that. That is not the American way. Direct action, revolutionary action is not the American way. The boring persuasion thing is the American way. And yeah, and we're seeing the victory and it's not attractive to people who like to see things burn while they win. Um, and so, you know, but, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a reckoning. Um, and a lot of people forget this, like they forget or weren't alive uh, or were six or seven years old when a lot of this stuff happened uh, on the right in the late eighties, early nineties. And it made life very difficult for people who wanted to argue seriously that abortion was a moral stain because the behavior of anti-abortion people also represented a moral stain and it made that conversation more difficult in the lead up to the Casey decision. And once the Casey, a, I'm sorry, yeah, just, I, yeah. I didn't want to interrupt your point about Casey, no. but losing has a psychological effect on you. Um, just look at any society that lost a war uh, and it gets more losing because you react uh, internally, you get paranoid, you get aggressive, and you react radically, um, which turns off the, the balance of opinion uh, in, against you. And then you lose more. And that was sort of the story of the conservative movement in the late 20th century, um, more before the 1980s, but definitely late 20th century. And it's not now. Uh, and progressives are staring down the barrel of this very same phenomenon. Because you see well, them I mean, again embracing, embracing direct action, a revolutionary ethos, and now they they find themselves beset. They think they're beset, not just by the law, but the culture. They feel themselves losing the commanding heights of the culture, and that right. that'll make them very dangerous. Look, I mean, the thing is that this is a very complicated country, and uh, sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose, and sometimes you're winning in one area, and you're losing. In another, and you are often much more inclined to credit the power of the things that you don't have control over versus the power of things that you do. And so, you know, uh, if conservatives have no voice in the academy or in popular culture, uh, they're often inclined to say, well, until we get them or we have some, you know, there's some more equal time or something like that. We're never going to win anything because they're always going to get to have drag queens at the library or in second grade or something like that. Or they're going to, you know, they're going to make Buzz Lightyear's best friend into a lesbian so that you can propagandize for, you know, uh, the, you know, propagandize for gay marriage in a in a in a Pixar movie. And we're never going to win anything. And then at the same time, you look and you see gun rights, abortion, uh pushback on you know on 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 a lot of the stuff uh yesterday we heard that the that the merit-based high school the hard to get into high school in san francisco uh the school board that got uh voted out the new school board has returned that high school to a merit-based admissions process that will likely happen in other places as well as these school board fights go on. That's a reversal. That is a cultural reversal. Here's one I'll but tell if, you. Yeah. And there's well, law plays a part here, and I'll give you one example of it. <clears throat> um, Nate Hockman, who's a journalist over at National Review of Young Guy, he's enjoying quite a lot of success, and it's deserved. I'm a fan. I think he's a he's a bright writer. He's a good thinker. He describes himself as a social conservative more so than I am, and he's tempted, I think, by some of the national populist arguments. But he's a thoughtful guy. And he wrote a piece the other day, um, which for one of the first times in my uh, adult life, uh, illustrated my, my advanced age, um, because he argued in favor of re-implementing something along the lines of the fairness doctrine. Well, the fairness doctrine ensured that uh, broadcasters had to give equal representation to ideological views. Um, and this resulted in some very commercially constraining doctrines on, for example, broadcasters, where I cut my teeth when I was a young man. Um, there was no reason for Lynn Samuels to still be on WABC radio when I was a conservative talker, but she was there. She was grandfathered because she was a Fairness Doctrine recipient, beneficiary. The repeal of the Fairness Doctrine created an atmosphere, created an, an, a commercial environment in which conservative talkers 
could overtake the AM dial. It wasn't mandated that this would happen. That was consumer preference. And consumer preference was thwarted by the Fairness Doctrine. The elimination of the Fairness Doctrine allowed a consumer preference to thrive that created a conservative voice in America that previously did not exist and had profound implications for our politics and our culture in ways that you know I probably wouldn't be in the seat in, if that was still in play because I wouldn't have been attracted to conservative talk radio and I wouldn't have been attracted to the movement and I wouldn't have written and I wouldn't have been here. Uh, and a lot of conservatives probably would have found themselves without the ability to articulate the arguments they made in those years. So we lose the history of it and think that there needs to be some sort of legislative memory or legislative remedy to what they perceive to be unfair conditions created by the marketplace. But that's not the story of the fairness doctrine at all. You never win arguments. Arguments are never won forever. You know, they're never won forever because people forget, because time moves on, and because the same siren song temptations toward using power to regulate the authority of the other side uh, come to the fore, and all of the cautionary tales that tell you otherwise uh, are, 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 are forgotten or really aren't, aren't known. You know, it's uh, that that's you're talking about Nate Hockman and the Fairness Doctrine. I mean, you could have the entire world of of Jacobin magazine and the neo-socialists who have no idea what it is, what, you know, who, who are too young to know that a lot of what they wanted was attempted in places that turned into charnel houses of evil. And they should know, and they should read the Gulag Archipelago, and they should know what Cuba was like under Castro, and they should know what it's like when you redistribute, forcibly redistribute income and force people who are, you know, in a certain class to go pick sugar cane to show them, you know, what, what life is really like for the suffering underclasses and all of that. They should know, but they don't. And so you have to, you have to show them again and again and again. This is actually the argument. This is, this is arguments are never won forever. Uh, the same temptations that, the same temptations that make people believe bad arguments in the first place return in different form. You know, and 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 so it makes perfect sense that Nate Hockman, who was in his 20s, doesn't know the history of the Fairness Doctrine and how its repeal in 1987, which, by the way, is makes total and perfect sense once you under, particularly given the fact that we now live in the Internet age. Uh, the, uh, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed by the FCC on the grounds that the government had no right policing and regulating the speech of these privately owned corporations and television stations simply because they were because the the 1934 communications act allowed the government to sell off or to rent out parts of the airwaves and therefore it could regulate the content on those airwaves and basically the reagan administration did not believe that government should be regulating content and now we're back. It's 40 some odd years or however long it is, 30. I don't need to age myself that much. It's 30 some odd years later. And, and we're now having to argue yet again with Nate Hockman and Saurabh Amari and others that it does not go well when you try to use the levers of power to impose social goods and social remedies that you think would be better for people than the ones that are in place now. And that that doesn't work and it doesn't it'll it'll you, you will rue you will rue and you will rue the day that you tried to use that remedy but they 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 want it because why shouldn't they have it the other well, side because has of it too. persuasion and back to abe's point because they they don't feel like they have the 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 opportunity much less the ability to persuade they they don't want the ability to persuade they're sick of persuasion it's funny because of course they're as neurasthenically intellectualized as we are. But what they like is power. What they do is run a website and, you know, and make arguments and get and go out with each other and drink and make arguments. So they should be less, you know, hungry for, you know, controlling the levers of power because that's not, that's not who we are. That's all we do. It's for other people to do. But nonetheless, they, they are very much attracted to the idea that you're supposed to use power to do good. And since that's what the left does, that's what they should do. Well, but you know, the only the only it's not just that the left's ideas are bad. 
that this that this doesn't work. It's that it's that centralized power to control human behavior is a, is a wrong. The only substantive thing that they've that 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 has been done along these lines that I can think of at the moment um, is Ron DeSantis's move against Disney, which I think was wrong, and 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 that battle DeSantis had won the battle beforehand. He's done a couple of things uh, along those lines. I'm thinking of two or three very Disney-esque moves, two of which were blocked by the courts. Um, Yeah, because they're patently unconstitutional. But 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 it's it's not the it's the fight that matters, not the outcome. Right. Yeah, but I will say this for the DeSantis Disney thing. So there is an unspoken pact that takes place when corporations and governments go into slightly unholy alliance with each other, right? Disney gets special rights over land in and around Orlando um, that that no other corporation has in America. No, there's like Um, 1,700 similar districts in Florida. Well, see, yeah, you know, excuse me. There's 1,700 that take up two acres and this takes up thousands of acres. So, all right. So, um, but by the way, this unholy alliance occurs every, it's like, we're going to do this because this is mutually beneficial for us. You run this, you, you control the land use and you do this and you do that because you know how to do that better. And you don't want us coming in and interfering with your every decision. And in exchange, you stay out of our sandbox. This is, we're buying social peace with you. You stay out of our sandbox. You want to start, you want to start trying to lever the power you have as a, as a major employer and, and person and spender in our state to get uh, us to do things because your people in California are having cows about social policy in Florida. Sorry, you don't get, we had a deal. The deal was you get this and then you be like a good soldier and keep your mouth shut. And if you're not going to keep your mouth shut, then the deal isn't going to, you know, the deal, which is, which is surviving solely as a result of entropy, that deal doesn't necessarily get renewed. Okay, and and we you will know, see, by the way, and we'll see what happens. No, we'll see precisely how, how the, the people who are supportive of this initiative react when it is almost entirely rolled back amid negotiations between now and the year in which it's supposed to take effect because it would be such a dramatic burden on taxpayers. We'll see if they even notice when it doesn't actually happen. I know. Well, we'll see. It's, I'm just saying I, I see more of a defense in what DeSantis did, even if it seems I'm just saying as a matter of raw politics and I've, I raw politics is real. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not uh, anyway. Maybe he did wrong. Maybe he didn't do wrong. If you want to look at it, you know, I'm just saying like Disney doesn't just get to do anything without consequence that's everybody's got a consequence if you're if you're if you're getting if you're getting your hands dirty in politics you can't expect your political opponents not to you're trying to screw them they're going to try to screw you it's that simple like so stay out of it if you have other interests uh and if you have other interests and you're doing a lot of stuff like that you're probably doing it from your desk chair yes it's the transition to the ad about the x chair the X chair, where we spend more you spend more time every day in your office chair than in your car, maybe even in your bed. So invest in the right chair so you can spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort. Okay? It's patented dynamic variable lumbar, the DVL. It offers the ultimate customized support for your lower back. And your X chair can give you a massage. It can heat you up or cool you down with that patented LMX temperature. Uh, technology. And now thanks to X-Chair's new F360 armrest, you can even adjust your armrest to the perfect position. The hours will fly by at your desk. It'll be your favorite piece of furniture. I swear I swear to you. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call one 844 xchair for $100 off your order. X-Chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com Now before we go, we got to talk about the fact that Joe Biden, who is now heading perilously close to Trump in Charlottesville territory or, you know, Bush during the meltdown territory or um, other poll 
disastrously low poll numbers in the low to mid 30s or lower than the mid 30s without a gigantic crisis. I mean, we have this kind of like wearing, grinding down inflation spiral, which is terrible, but it's not a, you know, it's not like the financial meltdown or the pandemic or, you know, Black Monday or, you know, Iran-Contra or something like that. Um, so uh, in his latest desperate effort is that he calls for a federal uh, gas tax holiday for three months. And um, nobody likes it. I don't mean we don't like it. Generally speaking, we like a good tax cut. It's not a tax cut. It's a three-month suspension of a tax that, by the way, isn't what you think it is. It's not the tax that is imposed at the gas pump. It is the tax that is imposed on refined oil at the at the or or imports at the border or refined oil after it's refined before it is shipped. So the amount of money that's saved by a federal tax holiday is astonishingly small. I think somebody said that people will save three and a half dollars a week or something like that. Your ordinary your ordinary uh, gas consumer in the United States will save three dollars a week. So that's, uh, you know, what is that? That's $12.50 a month. That's great. I mean, it's not nothing. And as I say, if you want well, it to permanently... It is, yeah, go ahead. It's not. It's it's nothing when you factor in that. So you'll save $3 a week, and then you'll also increase demand, which is precisely what we're trying to fight. <laughs> yeah, it, it, would, I, uh, it, was, it would help stimulate demand on the on the margins but the the progressive objection to it the left's objection to it is that all the savings would be absorbed by producers and that's bad because you don't want companies to make any money but at the same time we also want them to exploit new deposits and invest in existing deposits and produce more energy so <laughs> i mean i mean we need to flood the market with oil in order to lower oil prices. That's the only way you lower oil. And this prices. is the existential conundrum that they're wrestling with is that they've convinced themselves for two generations that this is the ultimate evil. And now they need to wrap their arms around the ultimate evil and they're struggling with it. But Nancy Pelosi doesn't like that. I mean, he can't even get his own people to swallow his own gimmicks. Now it occurred to me that if, if this were Obama, all the people saying they don't like it would be saying they like it. Well, but Obama, Obama they're, they're citing Obama as opposition I know, I know. Yeah. But this ultimately becomes an argument against Congress. So look, Joe Biden is making an argument against his own majorities in Congress because he can't do this without Congress and Congress isn't going to do it. So what's the argument here? Vote He's against the majorities, just, the Democratic no. majorities in Congress? Every day between now and November, he is going to take a big humping turd and he's going to throw it at the wall to see if it sticks. This is all he's got. And maybe his people are delusional enough to think that each of these policies will be successful or helpful. We don't know them. You know, they're, they're, they're somewhat invisible to us and we don't really understand who they are and what they believe. They could think this is a good idea. In which case, he should get other people to work for him. But you know who else thinks it's a good idea? He does. And he can't get somebody else to work for him other than himself. Because he is the president. And he has spent his entire life having bad ideas and throwing them out there and then having them die because he was one senator and nobody needed to listen to him. And now he's president. Now he can throw them up there and everybody will listen to them. And then they will die. And I'm there for it with a giant tub of popcorn. Because I will conclude briefly again with the story I've told five or six times on here. I met Joe Biden in 1986 at the Washington Times at an editorial board lunch. And somebody said to him, Senator Biden, when he was a junior senator from the great state of Delaware, junior senator in the minority, and he was, but he, uh, he was on the I can't remember what committee he was on. They said, Senator Biden, what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks in your committee? And he opened his mouth. And 45 minutes later, he closed his mouth. I'd never heard Lagaria like that in my life. When I heard that uh, that uh, 
that uh, Barack Obama had passed a note to Joe Lieberman during his early days in the Senate when Biden got up to give a speech that said, kill me now. I was totally in sympathy with Obama. It's the one one of the few things I've liked about Obama was the fact that he wrote the note that said, kill me now. And now all of America knows what I knew back in 1986, which is that he is a ponderous bore and a moron who doesn't know that he's not a moron. So it's all your fault. Why didn't you warn us? Well, I'll send you a couple of op-eds on the text chain, in which I, I did plenty of warning. Um, nonetheless, I thought he ran a brilliant campaign, and so I thought maybe, well, you know, maybe he's got, maybe he's, you know, picked up a few uh, steps, but um, that didn't happen. Anyway, we will be back uh, tomorrow with more d- delightful, fun stuff. Uh, until then, for Abe and Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>